Hello, I'm Paul Gilroy, Director of the Sarah Parker Riemann Centre at University College London. I'm joined today by Linton Quasi Johnson, poet and activist, somebody whose voice has been absolutely fundamental to presenting and to interpreting the consciousness of black people in this country for many, many decades now. In the vernacular philosophical language of the 20th century black freedom movement, to which Linton's work as a poet has made such notable contribution, the idea of truth gets linked to the pursuit of right and rights. The pairing that results has often been associated with loud and unruly demands for justice. It's a mix that has endured far beyond the historical circumstances from which it emerged. Those demands for truth and right and justice reverberate very loudly in the context of the year we've just lived through, the COVID pandemic and the forms of inequality and conflict that it has revealed to us all with great clarity. It's also the case that those demands for truth and right and justice were very evident in the events that we're commemorating, 40 years since the Black People's Day of Action march. Now, Linton was a participant in the community's organised responses to the horrible loss of young people's lives in the New Crossroad fire. My own relationship with his poetry began with the publication of his second volume of poems, Dreadbeat and Blood, in the mid-70s. There, we can find a Fanonian revolutionary politics distinguished by its determination to take the question of culture seriously. Very much audible there, an insurgent spirit that was also connected into a mode of modernist expression, dubwise expression. Of course, Linton was influenced by the militant voices of the US black arts movement, but he seemed in places to be signifying on the work of some of the most revered of modernist poets. His work has always been equally appreciative of the demotic poetry of the reggae toasters and the lyrical heights of records half heard through the fog of intoxication in a blues dance. It was tuned into the political and historical commentary on Britain via the wordplay of the Jamaican sufferer DJs, Iroy, Big U, and so on. So long before the musical components of Linton's performances were formalised through his collaborations with Dennis Beauval, there was an implicit music here. And what Linton named bass culture characterised by a playful mix of menace and comedy, was giving way to the extreme seriousness of what I guess we can only call a dub aesthetic. The result of his innovations has been absolutely faithful to the lived experience of young black people during that time of ferment and conflict, especially with the police. And of course, that volume, that early work, Dreadbeaten Blood, includes a poem livicated to the memory of David Oluwale, a man killed by the only British police officers who have ever been brought to book for such cruelty. Willowales is a name like those of Assetta Sims and Blair Peach, Mark Duggan and many, many others that should be as famous and as celebrated in this country as those of George Floyd and the other African Americans who've met similar fates. Linton, welcome. Thank you so much for being able to offer us this time today. The context for our conversation today is really the need to remember and to reflect upon events of 1981, which, as you've said very clearly in the past, is a historic watershed period for the political development and political culture of black life in this country. So I want to just start with that, really. And I think for a lot of people who may be listening to this, they won't know the history that we know that we share. And I think, obviously, Steve McQueen's intervention around the small acts has given some elements of that history to people, which were surprising to them. But now, 10 years after Mangrove, we have 1981. We have the New Cross Massacre Action Committee, the unprecedented demonstration of March 2nd, 1981, 
which was the first domino in a whole sequence of things that happened that year. Can you set the scene for that demonstration and just talk about the period that was leading up to it? 1981. That was a period of Thatcherite rule and serious class warfare going on in this country because under the Thatcher regime, the program was to claw back the gains that the working class had made in the post-World War II settlement and to free up capital, free up capitalism, and to shrink the welfare state. It was a period of high unemployment, a period of social unrest, and within the black communities, the protracted war that had begun in the 60s between the police and the black youth was being waged. It was also a period of increased activity on the far right, the National Front and these organizations. It was a period of intensified racist and fascist attacks and murders, terrorist attacks carried out against black people, Asian people. And it was also a time when there was a campaign against Caribbean culture, in terms of the blues dance and the sound systems, there was a member of parliament called Jill Knight from Birmingham who was campaigning against these so-called West Indian parties and had been whipping up people into a frenzy of condemnation. So that was the backdrop of the New Cross fire, which happened on the night of the 17th, the morning of the 18th of January of that year. So that process of criminalization, really, that you've also not just talked about, but in a way, I think we could say your poetry chronicles elements of that process of criminalization in the decade running up to 1981. That process of criminalization is really focused around cultural events, around clubs, around parties, around the places where people gather together to joyfully celebrate and affirm the cultural things that they share, the musical things they share. And that all of that activity is being actively and heavily criminalized by the police, by the criminal justice system during that time, during that long 10-year period running up to 1981. And that's something which is really going on in London, but also outside London too. I mean, I was living in Birmingham at that time. Jill Knight wasn't my MP. Roy Hattersley was my MP. I don't really know what to say about that. But anyway, I have experience of living in Roy Hattersley's constituency. And I remember Jill Knight's attempt to make a kind of moral panic around the kind of noisy, criminal, dirty congregations of Caribbean people and their allies and friends and supporters. I mean, in a way, you know, it's a little bit like the things that were represented around the Mangrove Club in Steve McQueen's presentation of it. But my memory is, and my, I guess my historical research, if I can call it that, would say that that was going on everywhere. There were elements of that process that were widely distributed and people were very, very, well, I won't say frightened because they were also emboldened, but that pressure was something that was very familiar during that time. Frightened wouldn't have been the right word because by then, the so-called second generation of black youth had begun to emerge and they were the rebel generation. You know, John LaRose calls our parents' his generation the heroic generation, as opposed to the Windrush, which really doesn't really mean much. The heroic generation, those who would come here, the pioneers who laid down a solid foundation and began to build autonomous institutions. Well, 
you know, by rebel generation, I mean a generation of youth who were not prepared to be as reticent about the racism that we were experiencing and who were not prepared to be as passive. You know, in a nutshell, we're not prepared to put up with what our parents reluctantly put up yeah. tolerated. So the youth were very much in focus. And of course, you know, we had our rude boys, our lumpen proletariat with high chronic unemployment amongst black youth. You know, that was inevitable. Of course, the police used that as an excuse to terrorize black youth in general. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to me looking back on some of your earlier poetry, particularly Five Nights of Bleeding, which I always feel is a poem that's had several lives, really, if I may say. I mean, I was inside the rainbow on March the 3rd, 1973, when James Brown was oh, in. Wow. So I remember coming out and seeing the broken glass on the pavement, seeing the blood on the pavement. So I do understand what that pressure added up to day by day. I think that it's really important to convey that. And what I love about that poem and the poems of that period that you wrote, Linton, is there's a very strong, I guess I would call it, or I thought it was, a very sort of Fanonian feeling about the violence of the young people in defense of the community. You're absolutely right, because I didn't go to write these poems thinking I'm going to, you know, put Fanon's ideas into poetry or whatever. I was writing these poems, but at the time, Franz Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth was one of the books we had studied in the Black Panther movement, of which I was a member. And I was struck by the things he had to say about violence. So when I wrote poems like Dreadbeat and Blood, Five Nights of Bleeding, Time Come, those poems at the back of my mind, somewhere in my subconscious, was Fanon's idea about internalization, canalization, and catharsis. These ideas found their way into those poems somehow. I don't know how, but they managed to find their way into those poems. I mean, back in those days, you know, we had gangs. I mean, Brixton, we had the rebels, we had the untouchables, we had the raiders posse. And different gangs from different areas, they'd often be uh, internecine warfare going on between them and within them. So it was almost like a... I don't want to use a fancy word, dialectic going on. There was this black against black violence among some of the youth and police and state violence against us. And we resisting that violence. These are the different dimensions I wanted to explore in those early poems. Well, yes. And you say very clearly, you know, fratricidal violence, that sense of visiting your violence on those who are nearest to you, those who are dearest to you, those who are closest to you that that's the first phase and that at some point that you can see or hear approaching, that violence will be turned in a different direction. And that's the energy of Fanon's political vision, I think. Absolutely. And that was what I was trying to communicate in time come. Mm. Well, of course, you know, there's a lot to be said about what you dubbed the base culture and about the culture of those young people at that time the culture of sound. I mean, I remember when you were on Desert Island Discs some years ago, you said you wanted to take a bass guitar with you. I was thinking about that. Yeah, I want to be a bass player. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm sure Dennis Pavel will be able to steer you in the right direction. Oh, no, he's not telling me anything. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm wondering what it is about bass, about the sound of the bass and the power of the bass when it hits the body. I don't know, you know, but as a youth... Going to all these blues dances and reggae sessions at my local youth club. 
I found the base very attractive and there was something very essential about the bass lines. And for me, you know, I think the bass in reggae music is what distinguishes it from other pop forms. And I began to think about it and trying to conceptualize it in a way. I mean, I was a youngster then and a sociology undergraduate, so I really didn't know anything. But I was trying to think of it in terms of representing the or capturing or encapsulating the very pulse, the very energy, the tensions of urban society in Jamaica, and that the baseline would be expressing all those things, and that you could hear violence in some baselines when, you know, there were conflicts going on in Jamaica, rival political party warfare and all that sort of thing. And you could hear changes in the baseline as the society itself was changing. For example, in the early years of independence, you listen to Skia and the bass line is very George, you know, bouncy and happy. And, and then later on, in some of the Scatterlites tunes, you hear a kind of a dreadness coming into the bass lines. And this became an aspect of reggae. You listen to tunes like None Shall Escape the Judgment by Johnny Clark. You can hear that. And, you know, that was a time of states of emergency in Jamaica and the bass the tension in the bass reflected that. Bass culture kind of represented the rootedness of reggae music in the actual lives, everyday lives and culture of the people and the struggles that were being waged in society. Do you think that you began to hear that quality in the music that was being made in this country, in the music that was coming out of the rebel generation here? When did you begin to be aware of similar qualities in the sound of that music locally produced? There wasn't too much of that in the music here, really. I mean, one might have heard a bit of it in Matumbi, Dennis Bovell's old band, or a bit of it in Steel Pulse, and maybe Misty in Roots. But what took hold in this country was Lover's Rock, which was romantic reggae. Love songs, basically romantic love songs, Music really made to appeal to the girls and the blues dances because lots of time you'd go to these parties and dances and there'd be just a load of guys standing in the corner, you know, rocking or whatever. And um, we wanted girls. <laughs> so Dennis Bovell and John Kopai, a name that's often Never forgotten mentioned. in the um, story about Lovers Rock. John Kopai, together with Dennis Bovell, kind of pioneered the form working for Dennis Harris over in Lewisham mm -hmm. on producing music for his Lover's Rock label, which featured a lot of female artists. And because the music of that time was sort of romantically orientated, people would see it as being inferior, that British reggae sound has been inferior to the hardcore stuff that was coming out of Jamaica that reflected what was happening there. Well, I'm really pleased you mentioned the name of John Kipai because one of my favourite records, which I have to say I've been playing it a lot this week, is his original production for Ijaman Levi's Jaheavy Load, which to me is a sublime work of art, actually, from 1976 that comes straight out of that studio and that sound. You know, I don't know the story of that record, but it's an extraordinary, much better than the Jamaican version that came out three or four years later mm -hmm. when Chris Blackwell was guiding Ijaman's career closer to the mainstream. So I'm glad you mentioned him. Well, 
Let's start to talk a little bit about the march, the Black People's Day of Action march of March 2nd, 1981. And we want to remember that process. And I thought we could just begin by you talking a little bit about the work that John LaRose and other people did to build up that event and to draw together a kind of network, an unprecedented national network of activists and supporters and angry people to draw attention to the horrible wrong which had been done, first in the murderous fire and second time by the indifference, the antipathy of the police, the authorities, the government, and so on. So you were obviously involved in the Massacre Action Committee. So talk a little bit about that, and then let's talk about the day itself. When the fire happened in January 1981, by then we had a long tradition of black activism. And going back to the days of Black Power, and the Black Power era really was a broad church, if you like, because there were Black nationalists, there were Black separatists, there were Maoists, there were Marxist-Leninists, you know, and maybe a few liberal voices amongst those as well. (laughs) By 81, we had established a tradition of organizing and mobilizing in our struggles for racial equality and social justice. So the New Cross Massacre Action Committee, the main players really, consisted of veterans like John LaRose, the founder of New Beacon Book and one of the founders of the International Book Fair of Radical Black and Third World Books, which came later. And an old activist who was persona non gratia in his own country in the colonial days with an enormous amount of experience, a clear thinker and a a very good organizer. You had people like Eric and Jessica Huntley, who were also involved in the anti-colonial movement in the native Guyana. And those people had formed an organization called the Black Parents Movement to deal with issues around education and the criminalization of black youth by the police. And then there was the Race Today Collective that published the journal Race Today under the leadership of Darkus Howe, who was an old Black Panther himself. And the Race Today Collective included people like Leila Hassan, who had been involved in the Black Unity and Freedom Party. Gina Ambrose, also from the Black Unity and Freedom Party. Myself. So I was involved in the Black Panthers as well as the Black Parents Movement. And there was a youth section of the Black Parents Movement called the Black Youth Movement. And we also worked with a group of activists from the north of England, who at first were the Bradford Black Collective and later morphed into the Northern Black Collective. So those three organizations formed the core of the organizing committee of the New Cross Massacre Action Committee. We weren't the only ones involved in mobilizing for the Black People's Day of Action. All kinds of people were involved in that from various organizations, including uh, Black Liberation Front and all kinds of organizations from Birmingham. I remember Vinnie Brown, who was my martial arts instructor. And uh, people like that. So there was a group of experienced activists who got together and decided that, you know, we're going to call a public meeting and see where we go from there. Those meetings were called People's Assemblies by John LaRose and happened at the Moonshot Youth Club over in Lewisham. And out of those meetings, 
maybe three or four meetings, came the idea for a day of action. I may be wrong about this, but if my memory serves me well, I think the idea came from the floor rather than from the platform. And I think it might have been a man called Lloyd Moody, who was a shop steward in the Transport and General Workers Union. But anyway, the leadership adopted that idea. And we went for that idea, a day of action that would shut down parts of London, that would march through the city of London, Fleet Street in particular, because of the racist response of the gutter press to that tragedy. So when the New Cross Massacre Action Committee came into being, one of the first things they did was to advise the parents to form their own parents group which would be completely independent of the New Cross Massacre Action Committee. Whatever we were doing, you know, was something different from their own campaign for justice for their families. But, you know, we were working on their behalf. But it was important that it was seen that they had their own independent group. The second thing we did, which was crucial, was to establish a fact-finding committee where the people on that committee took statements from all the people who were involved, people who were at the scene of the fire and so on, and eyewitnesses accounts from people who saw a possible assailant running from the building and the car that that person was driving and so on. And we did that because within 48 hours, without having carried out any forensic investigation, the police ruled completely out of hand possibility that it could have been a racist arson attack, even though it was they themselves who, when they arrived on the scene, told Mrs. Ruddock, Yvonne Ruddock's mother, the girls whose party it was, that it was an arson attack. They ruled it out completely without having carried out any forensic investigation. And miraculously, the incendiary device that was found near the window of the house was never presented as evidence at the inquest. You know, that's another matter. How important was it that it was a working day that was chosen for the march? Crucial. It was absolutely crucial because the working day was chosen because it would have the maximum impact and it would make people take note that black people in England were not prepared to be murdered by fascists and just sit back and do nothing about it. So what do you remember about the day itself, apart from the rain setting off? Yes, yes, it was a soggy affair. <laughs> what I remember about the day was that, you know, we started off with quite modest numbers when the march left that park up in New Cross there. I forget the name of the park. Fordham, Fordham Park. That's right. Maybe a, a few thousand people, you know. And the numbers just kept on building and building and growing and growing and growing. So by the time we got to Hyde Park, maybe 20,000 people. I saw school children jumping over the fences. By the time we got to Peckham, school children were jumping over the fences at their schools to join the march. And, you know, my job on the march was, I was one of the stewards, and my job was to try and keep the lumpen elements <laughs> under control. Can you imagine that, Paul? Me trying to keep those guys. But in general, it was a very, the marchers were very well behaved. I think maybe one jewel shop was robbed. Later on in the day, yeah. In Tambor or somewhere. But in general, they were very well behaved. Another thing is that 
when we got to Blackfriars Bridge, the yeah. police tried to turn us back. And it was those lumping elements, the rude boys, who led the surge so that the march could continue. I remember that moment, actually. I remember that moment and feeling unsure what was going to happen. Mm. (laughs) And I always, you know, applaud the tactical acumen of the organisers who set off a little bit early so that the forces on the other side were not perhaps as organised or prepared as they might have been if that extra time had been used. And I certainly agree with you that there was an incredible discipline amongst the marches. I can remember coming to Camberwell Green or somewhere like that, and some of the younger people wanting to go off to get refreshments from the shops, and the stewards standing in front of the supermarket and saying, no, not on this day. You must remember that the march, at the head of the march, was a man of great dignity who commanded a lot of respect, John LaRose, who was the chairman of the New Cross Massacre Action Committee. And he was accompanied at his side by Bishop Wood, the first black Anglican priest in this country. I think he was Bishop of Croydon. So, you know, they set the standard, basically. Well, of course, on the other side of Blackfriars is Fleet Street. Right. And that, for me, was, when I think of the day, that was the most extraordinary moment for me to be in a kind of direct confrontation with the people who've systematically misrepresented you, acted against your interest, callously, violently, and to have them leaning out of the windows, shouting abuse at you. Shouting racist abuse. Shouting racist abuse. But we deliberately chose to march that way to make a point, to let them know how we felt about the kind of racist drivel that they wrote in their papers. Even on the ground, I remember, I can't remember who it was, but some white person was mouthing off some racist remarks and a group of guys were going to kick his head in and then another group intervened and saved his skin, you know. So there was restraint, (laughs) even though we were provoked. Mm -hmm. The other thing I remembered about that march is that John LaRose handing in a letter to number 10 Downing Street. I can't remember if one was handed into Scotland Yard as well, but certainly 10 Downing Street, laying out what our demands were. Because, of course, you remember that at the time, there was complete and utter indifference on the part of the state about what had happened. We must remember, you know, Paul, that back in 1981, black people were still marginalised. We were still on the periphery of British society, you know. So it was as though it wasn't something that was the concern of mainstream society. Oh, these people had some fire at some party, didn't concern us, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. No, that's absolutely right. And I think that's probably hard for people now to imagine that situation. What do you think is the most important thing to convey to a younger generation of listeners, people who are coming to this history fresh, What's the most important lesson for you that came out of it that they need to think about in the context of our present circumstances? Because, you know, in a way, forms of inequality, forms of violence are so swirling around us in the context of the pandemic in a different form. I'm just wondering if there's any way in which the history speaks to our present circumstances that you might identify. Well, I think what young people can learn from the Black People's Day of Action was that Black people have the capacity to organize and to mobilize 
in defense of our own human rights and in the struggle for racial equality and social justice because that march was unprecedented. It was the most spectacular display of black political power up until that time. And those youngsters now involved in the Black Lives Matter movement must understand that they belong to a tradition that things didn't start with them. <laughs> that, you know, that they're part, that they're a new generation who have become suddenly awoken, become conscious of the need for them to continue with the struggle. But one of the things that lessons that we can learn from what happened in 1981 is that we cannot afford to be complacent about racism and fascism in this country. We have to be alert and vigilant because those elements are still very much a part of British society and a part of British culture. And we must also be aware that for the last 30 years or more, there's been a resurgence of fascism throughout Europe and that fascism has gained ground within the mainstream of European politics. And we have to keep that constantly at the front of our minds. Well, thank you, Linton. I think that's a really good place to end, actually. Is there anything else you feel that you would like to say before we close? Just to say that, I mean, for the last 30 or, or more years I've been talking about 1981, is that there was three things that happened that year. It was the New Cross Massacre, the fire in January, the Black People's Day of Action on the 2nd of March, and in April, the Great Insurrection, Brixton Uprisings, the Manchester, the Birmingham, the uprisings throughout urban England, 1981. It made the British state, the British authorities, sit up and take note of the fact that we had power. We had power, and we could mobilize that power. The other thing I would like to say was that I think it was obscene the way the inquest into the fire, the first inquest, which was held in May, was called with such indecent ace. It was obscene that evidence that could have resulted in a completely different verdict was repressed. I mean, some years later, Dr. Davis, the guy who presided over the inquest, talked about, oh, they wanted to blame it on a white man. And worse of that effect, or that we just had a riot. We didn't want another riot, which, which makes one wonder if the cover-up was based on genuine fears of mm. racial conflagration, if there had been a verdict of unlawful killing. I mean, the inquest raised lots and lots of issues, don't they? Because I remember marching around outside one of them. I remember also that, I think I'm right in saying that the police arranged for it to be transcribed covertly and didn't tell anybody, the first inquest, that the transcriptions were being made. I'm sure that there are lots of questions of skullduggery and dubious practice associated with the ways that the open verdict was arrived at. And I'm hoping that at some point in the future, the historians will want to return to these questions because there's some very important issues about what counts as justice in this country that need to be relooked. There's one more thing I remember, Paul, is that another disgraceful act was the collusion between Scotland Yard's press office and the press 
in putting out lies and disinformation about the cause of the fire and the lies that they put out on the eve of the Black People's Day of Action, saying that we're about to charge somebody for the fire to undermine the march, which it didn't work. And the wide cross-section of young people involved in that march, the huge input from sound systems, because all the major sound systems were there on that march and had helped to mobilize for that march. So the importance of youth culture, popular youth culture in our politics, that's an important thing to Absolutely. There's quite a body of music that was recorded in tribute Mm -hmm. to the dead. And people remember Johnny Osborne, obviously, and the records that Sir Collins made, but there's Blackstones, there's a number of other... Karen Wheeler of Soul to Soul, she did a song which was produced by John Kapai Uh and Dennis Bovell. And I think Aswad did something. Aswad did the Johnny Osborne one, yeah. 13 Dead, that was released by them. I did one. And you did one, just a minor. (laughs) (laughs) No, we bring all that together. The history comes alive in another way. So thank you, Linton. Thank you for remembering with me. And thank you for guiding the historical sensibilities of a rising generation by giving them that detail and that testimony, which is so crucial for the choices and decisions and strategies they will devise in the future. Thank you, Paul. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. For more information about UCL Sarah Parker Women Centre, find us at ucl.ac.uk forward slash racism dash racialization. Or follow us on Twitter at UCL underscore SPRC. This podcast was produced by me, Kaisa Kahu, and executive produced by Professor Paul Gilroy.